Good evening and welcome to The Common Room, a podcast by European Waves. My name is Arya and today we are back again in the studio in Krakow and I am joined by two very special guests. Why don't we have them introduce themselves? I'm Catherine. I am an EPS student. I'm from the United States, just like Arya. And I spent my last semester in Prague and I'll be in Leiden next year. I'm very excited to be on the podcast today. We are excited to have you. My name is Gerge. I'm a second year student of EPS and I'm from Hungary. I spent my last semester in Leiden University. Then I also started my EPS studies in Prague. Yes, Greg, you were in Prague one year before us when everything was in the middle of lockdown. How was that? It was very locked down, I, I should say. Um, <laughs> very different experience, right? Definitely. I mean, life was not stopped at all in Prague. It was, was just a different lifestyle. So 15 of us were living in the same building in central Prague. So I wouldn't say it was boring. It was it was a different experience But you guys had, but uh, no regrets. And, and uh, yeah, it was all fine. Thank you for sharing. Definitely always curious about how everyone else experienced their uh, pandemic lives, um, especially if Once we started to sort of acclimate, when people started to go back on Erasmus or start back going back to the office once or twice a week, it's always interesting to know how everyone experienced that in between, not in between, but more of like the post-emergency, but pre-regular But pre-pre-regular life, because we're not we're not in regular life, but I think we're like pre-regular life, hopefully. So maybe it's like a pre-pre-regular life. It's a very ir ironic turn of events that the first proper spring we had in three years, we were getting ready of finally getting rid of Corona. Then we have to kickstart this, this spring with a war. So it's a sad event. Yes. Um, and I think that's a great transition to discuss what our episode is going to be about. We are talking about the war in Ukraine. Specifically, we're going to be focusing on different media portrayals leading up to the war and then also maybe a little bit after. I think I want to start off by saying that it's a really difficult situation. Uh, all of us are still trying to wrap our heads around it. Um, at the end of the day, we are so close yet so far and The heaviest part is the displacement, the humanitarian, I guess, consequences for all of this, right? People are losing homes and, and, and loved ones, and it's it's not easy. So we just wanted to make sure that we didn't continue this podcast without acknowledging, but also not take up space in the conversation by saying something that maybe other people would be more suited, um, or maybe it's more of their place to, to talk about their personal experiences. So that's why we wanted to talk about the media portrayal and things that we Could really maybe provide our limited insight to. So um, with that, I think Greg is going to start us off. He's going to be talking about the Central European perspective, and also he's from Hungary, so he's going to be talking about Hungary as an outlier of this perspective on the war and the rhetoric that led up to it, how maybe it varied among those countries. You know, I just want to start off by saying that what is very harsh emotionally is that uh, this region is so, so close to the conflict. Instead of conflict, I should say war. I think it's a more appropriate way of saying it. But anyway, we can't really ignore the presence of war, um, unlike, like for example, Portugal or other parts of the world in Western Europe. Life just goes on. You don't really notice that something has changed. But uh, in Central Eastern Europe, there are tens of thousands of refugees arriving to the borders every day. So even in Krakow, you can feel the wind of war omnipresent in the air, which is 
very hard emotionally, but what I really like to talk about is how the media portrays of this whole terrible situation. I should say that Central Europe in general, because of its historic experiences by uh, occupation of Russia and, uh, and and by communist dictatorship in in during the Cold War, it's it's a much more critical and much more st- straightforward way of of uh, looking at the war. So the Baltic countries and in general the V4 countries, the public opinion is overwhelmingly supporting Ukraine because they can see their own previous fights in the war. So in Hungary we had an anti-communist revolution of 1956 crushed by Russian tanks. Um, Then Czechoslovakia had uh, um, uh, 1968 uh, crushed by Russian tanks. Then Poland, of course, had uh, numerous revolts, including the the 80s um, solidarity protests. So we have direct experiences with this. And when it comes to the current situation, we can see that the, the war the Ukrainian people are fighting for their freedom is, is, is really for their right of self-determination. And that's why many, many people are overwhelmingly pro-Ukrainian in, in the public opinion in Central Eastern Europe. Um, what I really want to emphasize that it's uh, unfortunately not unanimous opinion. There are outliers in terms of media portrayal and, and, and the main outlier in this in this war is uh, my home country, Hungary. So the government which has been in power for 12 years kept very warm ties with Russia over time. So there were times where Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, were meeting on an annual basis one year Orban traveled to Russia, to Moscow, the other other year Putin came to Budapest. And uh, this created, um, I wouldn't say a friendly atmosphere between the two leaders, but a very, very pragmatic cooperation based on based on lucrative energy and gas deals for Hungary. And in exchange for that kind of political support by Viktor Orban uh, towards Russia inside the European Union and inside the NATO. So with Hungary, we are talking about the NATO country, which has been in the past 12 years very understanding of, uh, of, of Russian points of view of geopolitics. Um, of course, when it came to serious conflicts in 2014, the occupation of Crimea and the war in Donbass, uh, which was ongoing for eight years, Hungary officially stood behind the line of the EU, so they supported the territorial integrity of of Ukraine. But in unofficial channels, and especially in the pro-government media, and and even more so in the public media, the media perception was mainly echoing pro-Russian voices that uh, Russia's territorial demands... um, in terms of Ukraine, are, are rightful and uh, Russian minorities uh, are, are suppressed, uh, just as the Hungarian minority in, in Western Ukraine, which I'm not saying it's not true. So Ukraine is a country with many, many problems, and it was uh, it didn't start with the war. It, it, it's a very uh, new democracy, uh, not very stable state, but, but despite all these problems, it's still a democracy, which is um, a very rare thing in the post-Soviet region. So getting back to the track, the Hungarian government was very understanding of, of, of Russian needs. And, and uh, I would say at some point, Russia didn't even need to operate, for example, uh, Russia Today or Sputnik News, Hungarian news editions, because the 
Hungarian public media and other pro-government media channels were doing their job. As you're speaking on this, I'm wondering what was in it for Hungary, right? Like you mentioned that there were lucrative energy deals. So obviously that, is that the only thing or is there more? So it's a historic product of being dependent from the Russian energy market. It's it's even present in Western European countries, especially Germany, but with Central Eastern Europe, the dependency which was built up in, in, in uh, the communist times is still there. And, and Hungary is the most dependent country of the V4 region, the Visegrad 4 region, uh, region on Russian energy. And what the government did uh, in the past 12 years, they didn't really try to find a workaround solution, buy energy from alternative sources, build nuclear power plants, which are not built by Russia, for example, but they did strengthen that connection. And their strategy was to um, get closer to Russia, cooperate with Russia, and in exchange for this, uh, our energy security will be solved for the time being because of this um, very pragmatic cooperation with Russia. I wouldn't say it was a it was a dumb strategy, but it was a risky choice considering the developments of, of uh, Putin's regime in the past 10 years. Say the reason why uh, Russian propaganda didn't need it, uh, need Hungarian additions is that uh, the, the pro-government media, many channels were doing its job. So there are Facebook pages called Russian News, which even during the war are echoing Russian propaganda of, uh, I don't know, Nazis in Ukraine and uh, the mistreatment of Russian nationalities in, in eastern Ukraine. So it, it's a pattern which has been going on for long. So do you know if those sort of social media pages and groups like that are any of those Russian trolls or propaganda like that? Or is it all, do you think, organic and genuine? I don't know if you know the answer to that. It's very hard to answer this question because it's, um, I mean, if it's Russian trolls, then then the Russian government would want to make sure that it's well hidden. So we don't have direct evidence of that. But at the same time, what we have direct evidence of that even during the war, the public media uh, channels funded by Hungarian taxpayers' money is is echoing uh, pro-Russian opinions about uh, about fascists in Ukraine, about the Russian soldiers being very decisive and and uh, and uh, like acting on, on like the humanitarian perspective of, of this special military operation. I mean, it even took um, many, many days for the Hungarian news agency to use the wording war in Ukraine instead of special military operation in Ukraine, which is, um, it's a NATO country, it's an EU country. It shouldn't even be a question that it, it's a war, what is going on, and we shouldn't use uh, the Russian rhetoric when it comes to this. Yeah, you're right. And following up on that, obviously you don't speak for everyone in Hungary, but what do people in Hungary think about that? I mean, you mentioned that taxpayers' money is going into paying for these media sources that are supporting these views. I mean, if I were paying taxes for that, I'd be upset. And, you know, granted, I do pay taxes for some things that make me upset. So um, I'm curious what people in Hungary are What you have to know is that the Hungarian public opinion is very polarized and I think that's something that it sounds very familiar to you as someone from the US. So the Hungarian government was basically in the past 12 years building up two very polarized camps of society with the rural, Christian, conservative, uh, um, good people and the urban liberals, the left, the 
the bad people which want to sell out our country to George Soros or sell out our country to to um, to Brussels as they as they say the European Union so i guess it's very familiar to you but back to the topic because of this uh, persistent uh, propaganda campaign of polarizing society even in um, even on the war in in Ukraine there are two different perceptions of course i think uh, I think um, more people are condemning Russia than than they actually support it, but there are still a sizable um, share of people inside of uh, the government's voting camp who 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 thinks um, it's it's actually the Ukrainians caused it for themselves. It was it was really the Russians, the Russian ethnic minorities who have been attacked by Ukraine and not the other way around. So so it's it's far from being a unilateral condemnation and. Uh, And that's why we are going on. That. Well, in Hungary, there is an election campaign right now. In three weeks, less than three weeks, there is going to be national elections, and the stakes for Viktor Orbán for staying in power have never been higher. So, what he's trying to do in this war situation is that uh, he tries to sell himself as somebody who's pro peace and pro neutrality. So, in our national day, it was March 15. Uh, his 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 speech was was basically about uh, Hungary has to stay neutral in the conflicts. We shouldn't support Ukraine by arms. We shouldn't uh, let NATO soldiers cross our territory in this situation because that would uh, that would upset Russia and that would cause troubles for us in terms of energy security, in terms of uh, humanitarian consequences, in terms of. Uh, Russia may be trying to Hungary later, so that's the government line, and the opposition is saying that no, you have been behaving as 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 the puppets of Putin for 12 years, and you should get to get back behind the line of NATO, and you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't follow any alternative politics in this regard. This is a war. Russia is the aggressor, and it has to stop. Period. Right, and it seems really convenient that he's creating this us versus them or using almost like this us versus them rhetoric in terms of NATO. You know, we don't want NATO soldiers on our land, which is funny because you're a NATO country. So Exactly. Yeah. Um, but what we can see, in, even in Krakow, you can see a lot of American soldiers running around the city. You don't really see that in Hungary. So there's no more troop deployments in, in Hungarian territory. The government is saying that we, we our army can actually defend itself. Um, At this point, when there would be a conflict, of course, that would trigger Article 5. So it would be a, a whole different situation when Russia would be to attack Hungary, which is very unlikely. But, I mean, that would be a different situation. But for the time being, as soon as uh, there's peace in Hungary, then the Hungarian government is saying we don't need any more NATO deployments. Can I ask, you were in Krakow last semester as well. Did you see any... U.S. troops at all in the streets prior to the last few weeks? Never? No, not no. really. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been seeing a lot of the American soldiers, and for us, I don't know, I, I, it feels like it's bizarre that they're here, but also I know that the U.S. and Poland have always had close ties, or not, you know, not forever, but it's a relationship yeah. the U.S. works to cultivate um, and is convenient for Poland to have as well, geopolitically strategic. So, yeah, as bizarre as it seems... Um, I'm also not surprised. As a Central Eastern European, I feel like when I see 
you as soldiers in our street, I don't feel like threatened. I don't feel, I, I don't feel intimidated. I feel secure. So like being in NATO for us is, is that kind of privilege. We, um, we guaranteed our security in the 90s where there was still uncertain how, how the new world after the fall of Soviet Union is going to develop. And if these countries were not to join NATO in 1997 and 2004, we would see the same consequences probably as we're seeing in Ukraine right now. So so we just feel relief when... I, I can speak about myself, but I, I can only feel relief when I see NATO soldiers in my street in, 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 in terms of a war going on in my neighborhood. Wow. I'm not really sure I have a proper response to that. I'm going to probably think about that for a while. I think especially because the U.S. military and especially military spending receives so much criticism in in a lot of ways, rightly so. But I also always ask myself, you know, what would happen if we didn't, right? Um, again, all much bigger questions, but uh, yeah, that's actually not something I was expecting I mean the, to hear today. The, the, the historical you have to see the historical uh, background of this. So these countries have lost their independence for such a long time, and when they regained it, they just never want to lose it again. So, and and that doesn't only mean political independence; that means sec- collective security treaty as well, which which uh, safeguards our, our territorial sovereignty. And what is your response, I guess, not just to Orban, but the people that believe what he says in terms of the strength or might of the Hungarian military being able to defend itself? Well, I I think this um, narrative of um, the Hungarian army defending itself from Russia is not not really, it's not really the government narrative. The government narrative is that um, as soon as, as as long as peace prevails in Hungary, then the with that, the Hungarian military itself can can cope. But if there would be a war happening, of course, we would need uh, NATO deployments as well. Right, right. You want to keep Russia close because it's convenient, but also keep the U.S. close because it's convenient. So you're trying to play convenient cards there. It's a geopolitical bridge building or, or a so-called peacock dance, as Orban himself said it about 10 years ago. So what he's doing in diplomacy is kind of a peacock dance between West and East and the bridge building between West and East. And I think it's not just Hungary that we see that with, but we see it with Germany as well and a lot of other countries in the EU who are also in NATO and just trying to balance the financial incentives with the strategic and geopolitical. And I think it's that's why it's so incredible that we've seen countries like Germany and even countries like Sweden enacting the sanctions that they have. Uh, it's just very unprecedented, which is a very popular word these days. But <laughs> I mean, if we if you speak about the wider Central Eastern European region, this region was warning of Russian threat for years after 2014, and, and, and many politicians uh, were labeled as alarmists for, uh, in Western Europe, they were labeled as alarmists when they were pointing this out. And especially in the context of Germany with the, the North Stream 2 and and uh, very close business ties with Russia, we can see the dangers of that in, even inside the political elites. What we saw here in the past couple of days is that many Central Eastern European countries have stepped up and uh, and supported Ukraine, not 
only by uh, not only by words but by traits. So you could see the Czech, Slovenian, and Polish prime ministers plus Jaroslav Kaczynski traveling to Kiev on a train to visit uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, which is um, unprecedented. It's it's a it's a city under almost um, or almost a siege and. Um, and the president was uh, reportedly surviving many assassination attempts in the past couple of weeks, and these three prime ministers are there. Then, even recently, Lithuania supported unanimously establishing a no-fly zone above Ukraine. Poland Senate unanimously supported raising defense uh, spending to 3% of the GDP. I think it was um, on Thursday. So we can see a lot of countries which um, which have stepped up in the past couple of days and realizing that uh, what we are doing currently is, is not exactly enough. We if, if we can't help with more arms or uh, more money, then we should help by important gestures, for example, by traveling to, to, to Kiev or Zelensky or, or implementing Zelensky's one of the most important political demands of uh, supporting a no-fly zone above Ukraine. So, um, and and the main outlier still being Hungary in the, in this regard, of course, Serbia as well has a sizable pro-Russian uh, a share of pro-Russian population supporting Russia in this cur- current war, but uh, Serbia is a very different story. We all know the the story of the Yugoslav wars, the NATO intervention, and and the Serbs like I can say historical f- ties towards Russia, and and Serbia is of course not a NATO country. So Hungary is still being an outlier, and whether it stays the same or or changes, it's very much dependent on on the election results on April third. Yeah, I think we're going to have you back on for a podcast again. (laughs) So I guess speaking of government responses, one of the most notable governments that has been responding to the situation in, I would also say, sort of unprecedented ways, the U.S., which Catherine is here to talk about. So I guess she's going to shed light a little bit on the media coverage leading up to the outbreak of the war, and then maybe how the media has responded slash covered the Biden administration's response. Yeah, so I think in the past few months, obviously I wasn't in the U.S. past early January, but it seems like there's been almost constant coverage of the lead up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine since December, January, and more recently. And I think as Ari and I both have experienced, um, our friends and family members back home were often asking us what we thought about it and what it was like being close to Ukraine, being in Krakow. I think that one thing that I noticed in a lot of the coverage in the U.S. was that before the invasion especially, there were a lot of ties to U.S. interest, or that was the media focus of the coverage. And so there was an episode of the New York Times podcast, The Daily, on February 17th, which was exactly a week before Russia invaded Ukraine. And so by this point, we'd seen increased coverage of what was at that point called a crisis. Now, as Greg said, is a war um, since early January. And on January 14th, the U.S. said in a press conference that they had intelligence that Russia was going to stage a false flag operation as a pretext to invade Ukraine. And the Pentagon compared this to 2014, but they wouldn't provide any details on this information. And so in the weeks that followed that, the U.S. had increased troop presences in Poland and Romania and ordered the 
family members of embassy staff to evacuate Ukraine. And so in this podcast from February 17th, New York Times correspondent David Sanger outlined why it's not seen as in U.S. interest to intervene militarily in Ukraine in the event of an invasion. And in doing so, he kind of outlined previous U.S. interventions, starting with the Gulf War in 1990, the NATO intervention in Yugoslavia, which he said was in part because of President Clinton's guilt and regret over not intervening in the Rwandan genocide. And then he also talked about the invasion of Afghanistan, which, much like the Gulf War, had a clear connection to U.S. interests as a motive. But then after that, we had the invasion of Iraq, which was a very different case and has led to a lot of criticism due to the intelligence and other issues around weapons of mass destruction, or the lack thereof, rather. And it's still a really recent memory for American civilians and policymakers. And so we're really tying this situation in Ukraine to past um, instances of U.S. intervention. And both the media coverage of the lead-up to the invasion and the public perception have kind of been quite polarized. And so on the one hand, we have had seen some skepticism of U.S. claims about what was in reality an imminent invasion on the one hand, and then some mainstream agreement on the other. By early February, it was pretty clear that the Biden administration's tactic was to expose Russian plans in order to prevent President Putin from wanting to go through with these plans. And some in the media saw this as a really effective tactic and a clear situation of our intelligence agencies outpacing Russian intelligence. But some questioned whether this might sort of goad Putin In one of the instances of exposing Russian plans, Ned Price, the spokesman for the State Department, had a pretty testy exchange with a reporter from the Associated Press, Matt Lee, and Price said that the U.S. had evidence of an imminent false flag operation, but he wouldn't provide any details. And so Lee questioned him on this and kept asking, where are you getting this information from? And Price kept saying, I have this information, but... The AP reporter just kept saying that you can't just use the claim as evidence, and it was a pretty interesting exchange. I mean, you have to acknowledge, I'll say, that the precisity of uh, U.S. intelligence information, say, um, I heard a lot of skepticism even before the war about the U.S. being very alarmist uh, um, and, and escalating this by exposing Russian claims towards Ukraine and the possibility of a war. But at the same time, reportedly, even many Russian high, polit- high politicians and political elites were uninformed about the, the upcoming war. So intelligence information should have came from a very, very high level. And, and you have to acknowledge the accuracy of this. Exactly. And I think most of us were in denial. As much as we know our intelligence is very detailed and probably was correct, I was in denial. And I also was getting the notifications from the New York Times for weeks, updates about this, updates about that. And literally a week before, Catherine and I, we lived together, and we were sitting, I, I don't know, in, in our kitchen or in our living room and talking about it and complaining about this alarmist media and how we were just frustrated and upset by it. And then they come out with this announcement that we have intelligence, that it's an imminent invasion, that it's going to happen. And we were literally sitting there just like skeptical of it. And then it did. And there we are, February 24th, with our mouths wide open. We couldn't believe what was happening. And then we live like behind the... Around the corner the corner, the consulate. Around the corner from the Russian consulate. And I mean, in a week, we were skeptical and then we were angry. And we saw, I don't even know how many people were there that night, but... About 4,000, I think. And, 4,000, and, oh my and goodness. 
because all three the head of the Russian consulate was was were full, and, and even since then there's a Ukrainian protest every day in the main square of Krakow. Obviously, there's many refugees who seek refuge in in Krakow in Warsaw. Even the two city councils said, "Look, guys, we can't take more people because we are overwhelmed at this point as well." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. But I guess Catherine, you were telling us about this testy exchange. Yeah, yeah. So I think what Greg said is absolutely right and obviously it's fair for members of the press to question information and I think again that's kind of the legacy of Iraq and Bush with the weapons of mass destruction and not wanting to get involved in something that we shouldn't but if you look at it it's kind of like the Biden administration was striking a balance between transparency and protecting their ability to continue gathering sensitive intelligence now and in the future without compromising those sources, as you mentioned, who are probably at a very high level or their willingness or safety to work with us. And so now we know that it's probably true what the State Department said, and it's not that unusual that the government wouldn't be able to expose the details and origins of sensitive intelligence like that. But I think the handling of it, the way it was portrayed on social media and in some circles, both on the left and the right, just shows this kind of divide we see in the U.S. and distrust of sort of the mainstream government narrative. And we did see this political divide. And there was an article also in the New York Times in early February about this, saying that it's a bit problematic when the U.S. sort of says, just trust us unless you'd rather believe our enemies, which is a fair assessment as well. Um, And It kind of gives journalists a dilemma in national security when they can't independently verify information that's classified. But I don't know, if you look at the situation in Ukraine compared to in Iraq, here in Ukraine, we're trying to prevent a war from happening. Whereas in Iraq, we were looking for an excuse to start a war and invade a country. So I think it's quite different. And then we also saw both politically and in the media, this kind of polarization in the views. And we had some Republicans in Congress like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are very far right Republican representatives in Congress. You may know some of them from their interesting. I, I just heard about the Gaspacho police. Yeah, Gaspacho police. Yeah, yep, exactly. Yep, yep. Yep. Say their names because <laughs> we cannot forget about those. No, and Lauren Boebert is from my home state, so I'm very, very ashamed of that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So we saw them kind of accusing. The U.S. of responding to the Russian buildup of troops in a way that was really trying to protect Hunter Biden's business interests in Ukraine, allegedly, which is not the case. But then we saw mainstream Republicans and leadership of the Republican Party who were calling Biden weak for not being tough enough on Russia. So you have a kind of divide in the mainstream of the Republican Party and the very fringe wing of it that unfortunately is not so fringe these days. Is the neoconservative wing of the the Republican Party supportive of uh, of um, more American involvement and it's really the alt-tribe Trumpists who are more skeptical or against or how do you see the divide? Yeah, I think there's definitely in the sort of pro-Trump wing of the party a very anti-interventionist slant and then in the more mainstream neoconservatives. So you saw before the invasion, Congress Some Republicans in Congress, I believe led by Ted Cruz, wanted to enact sanctions on Nord Stream. This was before Nord Stream was canceled. And Democrats 
in the Senate then had a different set of sanctions where they would enact sanctions on Russian officials if there was an invasion, and they were doing that to try to prevent the Republican sanctions on Nord Stream. So you do see amongst mainstream Republicans a lot of skepticism of Russia and their actions, and as I said at times, thinking that Biden isn't doing enough. So there's a big divide in the Republican Party, but also from some of what I've read, a lot of those more mainstream Republicans won't call out the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world in public. They'll only do so privately. And in terms of uh, Zelensky's appearance, I think it was in front of the U.S. Congress, isn't it? A couple of days ago, it was he, Congress. Yeah, he, he held a very emotional live stream speech, calling for a no-fly zone or more air defense systems uh, by the U.S. Uh, do you know anything about the, the reactions of the two parties and and how was main political figures responding to that? Yeah, I don't know specifically about. I do remember that now that you're talking about it, about the response to that. But I do know in the U.S. we've seen a lot of um, very pro-Zelensky messages on social media and in the mainstream media. Um, and so I think people have really have a lot of respect and admiration for him as a very courageous leader who prior to this, I think a lot of people didn't take him seriously politically for valid reasons. But now he's really stepped up to the plate. Have you seen the series which made him president, basically. I've seen clips of it. <laughs> you, you should, it, it's on Netflix, I think. Netflix, Netflix bought it and it's streaming it again. You should absolutely see it. It's hilarious. Honestly, I, I also would think that many people didn't really know even geographically where it was located. I, I think that there was like a certain amount of ignorance. Um, maybe not among everyone, but definitely like uh, like among a large portion of our population, unfortunately, um, because our public education is just very America-centered. Mm-hmm. It's and not so just about America. It's uh, I mean, I'm Hungarian, and uh, we, Berlin is, uh, or Berlin or Paris is geographically much more far from Budapest than Kiev, and still we have very little knowledge about, uh, in general, our neighbors, but especially Ukraine. Right, right, and exactly. So even even more so in the U.S. And so I think that very few people really knew what, apart from Crimea, I, I guess they really didn't know much, even about Zelensky himself. I saw an article the other day on the New York Times that was like, "Who is Zelensky?" You know, the comic that became president. And so it was a whole article about who he was and giving his history, like a formal Wikipedia page, if you will. And yeah, I mean, I think the fact that someone saw that there was a gap in knowledge and a need to discuss and put out in a like big release who he was and why we're supporting him uh, says a lot about what we knew about him. And especially because now everyone's like, oh, he's a figure and we should all get behind him. And someone took a step back and said, hey, like, do you even know who he is? Yeah, like I don't think we would see those sort of articles about Justin Trudeau or Boris Johnson. There's just definitely a knowledge gap, which I think is understandable. But yeah, it's definitely an interesting. I think we still shouldn't like heroize uh, too much, if that's a word. I agree. Uh, uh, Zelensky, I mean, he was very unpopular before the war. And uh, he had many critics inside Ukraine, outside Ukraine, obviously being the president of Ukraine, it's one of the hardest jobs, even in peacetime uh, um, in the world. But but at the same time, he was by no means perfect. We could see that uh, as the war happened, it's not only the international public opinion, but the overwhelming majority of the Ukrainian public opinion united uh, behind him. So he has like 94% approval rating, which is, wow, I have to say. That's pretty high. And speaking of presidents, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention... 
our former American president, Donald Trump's response initially to the buildup of troops in Russia. I think it was right after Vladimir Putin recognized the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk as supposedly independent. Trump called Putin a genius for doing so. And since then, since Russia invaded Ukraine, he's backtracked a little bit and he's sort of claimed that he was tough on Russia as president. But it's seeing that coming from a former president is kind of wild. And also Tucker Carlson, he's a host of Fox News's most popular show. And he sided with Russia before the invasion and still is. And both of them, again, have been met with criticism from the Republicans and Democrats in Congress and in the government. But it's just really a sign of this divide amongst the right. And then even on the left, we've seen some, especially on social media, accusations of NATO interventionism and hypocrisy and, you know, allegations that the U.S., was fabricating claims of a false flag attack or exaggerating their plans, which I think a lot of people sort of might have implicitly agreed with just because we didn't think this could actually happen. But now we've seen that it did happen. I just want to ask you about Tucker. I mean, uh, <laughs> he's an interesting figure. He, by the way, was in many occasions uh, coming to Hungary, but yes, making some he documentary <laughs> movies. Uh, anyway, it's hilarious, but it's another topic. But at the same time, do you think he's... Uh, just a useful idiot of the Kremlin, or there's something more behind it? I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I always wonder about people like him and Alex Jones, just, I don't know, is it an elaborate bit? Is it just, are they really that, you know, obtuse? So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'd forgotten that he he's a big fan of Orban, right? And He made two documentary movies. I think the last one was about how Hungary fought George Soros's influence, which is funny because this fighting against Soros manifested in chasing away the best university in Hungary, the Central European University, from the territory of Hungary, and they moved to Vienna. But anyway, if that's what it caused, that's what it caused to, to fight against Soros. But it's another topic. <laughs> yeah, so just to wrap up, I think Arya mentioned this a little bit before, but a lot of people in the U.S. and in the media as well, were a bit skeptical that Russia would actually invade up until the point, I think, that Putin recognized Donetsk and Luhansk. And so now it's kind of a bit of an I told you so moment for U.S. officials and foreign policy analysts who have been claiming for ages that this would happen and that it's the logical continuation of Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. And so, yeah, this war didn't start on February 24th. It really started back in 2014. And I think it's important to remember that. And now there has been a humanitarian crisis within Ukraine for those eight years. And now we're seeing that spill over into the rest of Europe being in Krakow right now and being so close to that um, has been really interesting to see. And I think Arya was going to talk about that. Yes. So for our podcast team, it was important to touch a little bit on the unique experience of living in Krakow as the situation escalated. And then after the invasion, For the sake of time, I think I'm going, I, this could be a whole nother episode because truly I was not expecting to find as much as I did when I started looking into the Polish media. I got like a subscription to one of their gazettes. Uh, I don't know if I can pronounce this right. Wyborcza. Wyborcza. Okay. Well, uh, I found some great things. It's all in Polish, unfortunately. So the issue with that is that my news is translated. So the translations I get are quite funny, but still they do the job. There's an English edition of uh, TVN24 
also there's a great website called Notes from Poland. I recommend both of those. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. I, I read something from that. Yeah, thank you. So I think we've seen a truly impressive global response, but the initiative of Polish civil society has been quite astonishing. However, there's this gap between civil versus local or larger government response to the humanitarian issue. Uh, and I think that just by looking at it from the outside or even being here, I know some people, they're telling their parents back home, you know, that Poland is doing such a great job. They're really welcoming everyone. And they're speaking of Poland just in general, people and government. But that is not the case. And it's not true uh, completely. And um, I'm just going to touch specifically on this week's developments. So basically here in Krakow, you have the Galleria and you have the train station connected to it. And so that's the main station where we have a lot of trains arriving. And in the last week and a half or so has been I guess, an accumulation or an amassing of people there that are arriving and just have nowhere to go um, or are figuring out what to do. And so volunteers, NGOs, uh, scouts, and like members of Caritas, were, which I guess means charity in, in Latin, um, like they're an organization, they are or were setting up centers, like information centers, and eventually they realized that they needed more support. So they set up these two tents and The local government said that they were going to help and try to, you know, get people out of the train station because the media started calling them out and people started calling out the local government saying, hey, like, you should be ashamed. People are sleeping on cardboard at the station. Why are we not welcoming them? And why is it residents that are having to organize all of this and NGOs and you're not helping? And if you read through what the government or, like, local government is saying, they're being very, like, yeah, we don't want to kick them out. We know that it's not very nice or humanitarian, too, but just doesn't look great that they're there. And so basically with this this whole tent issue, you had two tents. You had one where it was a clinic and a resting place so people who needed first aid or a place to sleep could go in. And then you had another one which was for hot food. It was like a soup kitchen. Um, and essentially the deal with this kitchen was that when they first set it up, uh, it was NGOs and then I think the scouts took over it, if I am not mistaken. And then the government decided that they were going to start sending firemen and police into the station to organize. That's That was their contribution. Um, and so what ended up happening is that there was controversy over this food tent because apparently the Krakow government did not like that they were serving food in this tent for the pandemic, like, due to pandemic concerns. I, like, I'm really not, I'm really confused. They gave some really shady responses as to why they were upset with this food tent. And then the interviewer at uh, Viborcha, or how? Viborcha, Gazeta Viborcha. Gazeta Viborcha, okay. Well, the lady that was interviewing, I think he was a deputy mayor of Krakow, was asking, you know, people here that are volunteering are saying that it's embarrassing that the food that's coming is from residents and not from the government that it's local residents coming and donating what they can and he responded that because they're worried about spreading the the virus they don't think it's safe to have everyone like accumulated in one place eating which doesn't make sense because two weeks ago they just sent out a massive email to us from the university that they opened krakow even though krakow was already open i guess they just took away the quote-unquote measures that stopped clubs and bars and all of these other things from operating, but they already were anyways. And then, again, she continued to press him, and the response he gave was that they were opposed to serving hot soup there because if the soup would spill, it would cause panic. What? 
<laughs> I guess I guess even a bigger level, we can see the same thing happening. Um, the Polish government just went out bragging about how they didn't have to set up, set up any refugee camps for people arriving from Ukraine. And if you are someone who takes Ukrainian refugees to your own home for a couple of days or supporting uh, them in any way, you can see the hypocrisy behind this because the reason why the government did, didn't have to set up, uh, set up any camps was that you helped them. And it's not really the government's task to take credit for that. Absolutely. And then I also read that uh, the government was proud because they were contributing to the situation by saying that if you, a Krakow resident, took Ukrainian refugees into your home, they wouldn't charge you for your rubbish. Because apparently you get charged for the amount of trash that you take out. I'm not really sure what the situation is. And I don't know why we don't deal with that here. I mean, I'm not sure if we're doing something wrong, <laughs> but um, I've never paid for my trash. I don't know if it's like included in our fees, but question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but anyways, that's the deal. And so the government was really proud putting out the statement that you won't be charged if you are, you know, taking out extra trash because you are hosting refugees, which is honestly a, a joke. Yeah. And I think it's just literally everyone here in Poland, there's so many people getting involved in whatever way they can, whether it's offering up a spare room or renting out a house for someone. Um, I heard of someone yesterday whose family rented a house for 90 refugees, and they're cooking or having meals cooked for them three times a day. So everyone is doing whatever they can, and that's not an excuse for the government not to help and to just leave it on civil society. Um, one of my professors the other day was talking about how it's been gratifying to see this Polish civil society kind of coming together in a way that it hasn't before. But again, it shouldn't have to be without the help of the government. I mean, we talked about polarized Hungarian and, and, and U.S. societies we have to talk about as well, is how united the Polish society have become And it was a very polarized society between pro-government and uh, pro-law and justice supporters and anti-government and anti-government voters. But now in this situation, everybody is unanimously condemning Russia's actions. Everybody is unanimously want to help uh, Ukrainians um, on a micro level, helping individuals, refugees, and on a macro level as well by help the government, the Ukrainian government fighting Russia. So it's something which, which has been great to, to, which was great to see, uh, especially coming from such polarized societies as ours. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Honestly, this this is going to have to be a whole other episode topic because I had so much and we are short on time. But we had a wonderful conversation. I always say that the goal of this podcast is to have fruitful conversation and i've learned so much i hope that our listeners have as well whoever's out there listening to us thank you so much both of you for joining me i hope to have you back soon other than that thank you so much to everyone that's listening and we look forward to coming back to the studio and recording something else for you thank you thank Take you care.